Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Seeing Red. Hi everybody. We hope you've enjoyed the Christmas and New Year break and a massive welcome to all of our new listeners. We'd also like to say a huge thank you to our new Patreon supporters. So we have Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. Um, Anybody who's been listening before will have heard her with us on episode 16 where we did our collaboration. So thank you, Kate. And then we also have Carl Phillips. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. It means the world to us. If, like us, you are doing dry January, then strap yourselves in with a cup of tea or a coffee because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Bethan has got an amazing story for us today. So, just after 6pm on the 18th of January, 1993, screams were heard coming from an alleyway close to a busy main road in the centre of Greenhithe in Kent. Mark Ingram was driving up London Road when he heard two fairly short screams from what he thought was a girl. Mark Ingram believed that they had come from the church on his right-hand side, but he decided not to stop because he thought they were probably just made by children messing around. He told police in a statement that when he discovered the next day what had happened, he realised to his horror exactly what he had heard. And referring to the fact that he had not stopped his car, Mr Ingram added, it is to my deep regret and something that will always live with me. Denise Spicer was ill in bed at home watching an episode of Roseanne. Between 6pm and 6.15, she heard two loud screams. In her statement to police, Denise said, I can only describe them as shocking screams that came from a female and from the direction of the alleyway at the rear of my house. She added that there was a short gap of a second or two before she heard more screams. The second screams were not as loud. I felt it was kids mucking around and this, together with the fact that I was feeling unwell, caused me to stay in bed. Kelly Wales was waiting to see her GP at Ivy Bower Surgery when she heard two faint screams. They came very shortly after each other. Her statement read, they sounded as if they came from just outside the surgery, and she added that there was a pause of about two seconds between the screams. No one else in the surgery seemed to hear, and she said, I thought it was a child playing. Her appointment with the doctor was then interrupted by the receptionist coming in to say that there was a young girl in the alleyway and a lot of blood. How often have we heard something and just assumed it was something less worrying? There's always kids screaming and playing in my street, and foxes that, like, scream at night... But I am one of those weirdos who, if I hear something, I'll check my watch and know what the time was, just in case I get asked in the future. That's because you're a true client. <laughs> true yeah, crime. You, know, you know how to, how to play the game. Yeah. So Claire Tiltman, otherwise known as Tilt, had just celebrated her 16th birthday four days before. She's been described as extremely popular with a wide circle of friends, and she wanted to become one of Britain's first female firefighters. She had left her house in Woodward Terrace near Stone just after 6pm on January the 18th to walk less than a mile to her friend Victoria Swift's house. They were best friends. They were in year 11 of the Dartford Grammar School for Girls. They were excited about the future, what life had in store for them. And they had their exams shortly and so they were looking forward to what was going to happen after that. But sadly, Claire didn't make it to her friend's house that night. And it was Claire whose screams were heard by the people in the local area. It's sad, isn't it? Because I think yeah. at that age, when you're in year 11, you've got your exams coming up. You, you're really on the cusp mm-hmm. of adulthood and your life is ahead of you. Yeah. So to have it snatched away at that age is particularly cruel. Absolutely. Her friend Vicky has since said, Claire arranged to come over in the evening to talk about what we were going to do after our GCSEs. She was determined to be a firefighter, but she couldn't join until she was 18. My mum had popped in to see her mum that day and offered Claire a lift to our house, but she wasn't really ready, so she said, don't worry, I'll walk. 
If only she had accepted that lift, things would have been so different. Mrs Tiltman had told Claire to leave Vicky's house by 7.30pm to come home. And by 7.50, Claire was not home. Mrs Tiltman said, I thought it was late and Claire should be home. By 10 past 8, I was worried. I telephoned Victoria's house and she said that Claire had never arrived. How long would you leave it if you were in that situation? Mm -hmm. How long would you realistically leave it before becoming A, worried and B, taking action? I know. And that's the thing. Like, I've definitely had it before where my other half has been late home and it gets to like an hour, hour and a half and I'm sort of like, well, he's probably fine. Like, obviously he's most likely going to be fine and he's just staying behind to do some work. But then I'm also like, what if something's happened on the journey home? And then you feel like a bit of an idiot when you ring and you're like, are you okay? And they're like, oh yeah, I'm just busy. But I think it does explain why sometimes it takes people a number of Mm -hmm. hours before contacting the police to report someone missing because you might want to wait four or five hours Mm -hmm. before you take that action because you're going through all these things in your head, you're contacting friends, colleagues, relatives to try and find where that person is. And then it does get to a point where you think, I've kind of exhausted every option now. Next stop is the police. And a bit like we saw with the case with Jodie Jones that we looked at ages ago in this podcast, um, as a parent as well, like obviously hers was a bit different because she had been grounded so she wasn't supposed to be, it was like a lucky thing that she was allowed to go out that night and stuff. But her mum has left it for over half an hour since she was supposed to come back. She's probably a bit cross and she's like, I'm going to ring Victoria's house and I'm going to tell her mum to tell her to come home. Not thinking that actually it's something to worry about. Mm, yeah. She then rang um, a different friend called Lisa of her daughter um, and asked, but Claire wasn't there either. And then Mrs. Tortman phoned her husband at work. He was working night shifts as a plumber and he hadn't actually seen his daughter since two days before because of where their schedules were so different. She also said, I kept looking out of the window. I was very worried by now. A neighbour told Claire's mum that there had been an incident in Greenhithe with police and ambulances at the scene and Mrs. Tortman thought Claire could have got caught up in all the traffic. So her and her neighbour went to Dartford Police Station and reported Claire as missing. She gave the police there a description of Claire and she was told there has been an incident and to go home. And it was back at home that the tragic news that Claire had been killed was broken to Mrs Tiltman. After his wife had phoned him worried about Claire, Mr Tiltman had received a phone call from the police as well, telling him that there had been an incident and officers would pick him up. In his statement, Mr Tiltman said he guessed that Claire had died as soon as he saw them. He said... The officers were not allowed to tell me what had happened, but I guessed. Mr Tiltman was taken home and he said he comforted his wife there. And at 1am on January the 19th, the couple went to the mortuary at West Hill Hospital in Dartford and identified their daughter's body. Claire had decided to cut through an alleyway about 100 steps away from a busy main road on her route to Vicky's house. But horrifically, she was attacked and she was stabbed nine times. And... What really did make this case a little bit more tragic for me was it was the early evening, it was close to a busy part of the village and after her death the attacker was spotted fleeing by eyewitnesses who could describe him but the attack was not solved and her killer was not brought to justice for over two decades. Oh my god, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So Claire has been described as, quote, she wasn't a girly girl but she loved her jewellery and big hoop earrings. She wasn't a goody two-shoes but she was naturally clever and she loved to read. And she was also described as someone who could get along with anyone. A school friend said she had a wicked and dry sense of humour. She always had us laughing. Now she's known because she's murdered and that's so hard to accept when you remember her as such a vibrant character. 
I just want her murderer caught so we can move on and remember her solely for the amazing person she was. And someone else said it was a vicious attack. The killer would have been covered in blood when he left her. Somebody must have seen that. And actually there were witnesses. Several in fact saw a man fleeing the scene and were able to give a good description of him to the police. This matched a local man named Colin Ash Smith, a milkman, and he's been described as a loner. So the police did pick him up to interview, but he had an alibi from his mum. She was called Diane. She was a former Labour councillor, and she told police that he had actually been driving her home at the time of the attack and that he was home by 6pm. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm suspicious. Yeah. And, and we saw that in Jodie Jones mm-hmm. as well. The boy that was responsible for her murder... No, actually, it was the opposite, wasn't it? Because his mum, he'd said he was with his mum mm. and his mum was kind of like, no, you weren't here. And she was saying all of that in front of the police. So, yeah, um, yeah she was kind of the opposite. I guess. Shut up, mum. Yeah, Come that on. was it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and spoiler alert, Colin Ashsmith is the murderer. Oh, Beth, you're, right to, you're right to not trust this guy at all. He is a horrible, horrible guy. And his mum was covering for him. Yeah. Colin Ashsmith also phoned the police incident room less than 24 hours after Claire's murder, trying to ensure that kind of he was covering his back. But his stories were strange and he kept changing them. He claimed to have been driving past the British Legion Club at about 6.30pm when he saw a male person crossing at the pedestrian crossing prior to turning left towards Greenhithe. And that was the crossing that Claire would have had to have used after buying cigarettes to go to her friend's house. Colin said that the man he saw had dark curly hair. And he was clearly worrying that he'd been spotted or his car had been spotted. So that's why he was kind of ringing. Then he realised his error because Claire had been killed half an hour before. Um, So he told the police in a witness statement six days after the first call that, oh, actually, it was 35 to 45 minutes earlier that I saw that man. So already he just seems a bit suspicious to them. But he's got an alibi, so they've got nothing on him. Colin Ashsmith was born in 1968 and was the only child of Aubrey and Diane Ashsmith. He was aged 24 at the time of Claire Tiltman's murder and he still lived with his parents, which last episode was such a bone of contention with our listeners. Really? <laughs> because I, like we did say though, nowadays it's not unusual to still be living at home and a few of our listeners have mentioned to us that I still live at home. Who, who, what was last week? So last week we were talking about I can't remember how it came across, but it was the oh young Stephen guy who Port, still wasn't lived it? At yeah, home yeah. He, did he live at home? Yeah, he lived at home until he was thirty. Yeah, it, and that was back in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. So that really back then was quite late. Yeah, to still be living at home. And this is like nineteen ninety three. So actually, again, being twenty four and living at home wasn't that. Mm-hmm. That would have been quite late then. I think it would be unusual now. Um, not unusual now, but I think it was quite unusual then. Yeah. Claire's parents, Linda and Cliff, were convinced that Colin was the killer, but sadly they both died before he was charged for their daughter's murder. That's always sad, and we've seen Mm -hmm. that loads of times where the mum or the dad don't get justice in Mm -hmm. their lifetime. Absolutely, and I've got a really heartbreaking quote from her dad coming up. It's going to (laughs) make you cry, Mark. Not having alcohol in January is going to make you emotional anyway. Yeah, I can't deal with this. I know. Colin Ashsmith killed Claire as part of a spree of attacks on females across Kent that he had planned. He murdered her for the sake of killing and called himself an animal with no moral compass. Colin Ashsmith was plagued by a hatred of women who said he felt humiliated him. So he went on midnight walks armed with knives hunting for his victims. He kept diaries and documents in which he bragged about the attacks. That's horrible, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Five years before Claire's murder, Colin was already attacking women. So that would be at the age of 19. Mm-hmm. I think um, something I read, he was 20, so I guess where his birthday had yeah. fell in the year. But yeah, 1920, he was already wanting to kill women. Although he was a virgin until he met his first and only girlfriend in 1991, he was obsessed with a work colleague's wife. And so this would have been in 1988 he did this. He broke into her home armed with a knife and he later admitted that he had wanted her sexually. And then when he asked whether he was going to use the knife to injure or kill her, he added, no, just to threaten her and probably to sexually assault her. Mm, Nice. And that was his work colleague's wife and he was going to break into their home. So this was in 1988, five years before Claire's murder. And I'm guessing that wasn't known at that time. So no. this maybe came out a lot yeah, later, yeah. that's it. And then not long after the this situation breaking into the um, work colleague's home, he actually kidnapped a 27-year-old woman at gun and knife point from outside her home in Swanscombe. It was the 21st of December, 1988, and he forced her to walk to a quarry where he removed her jeans and knickers and then attempted to rape her in various positions. He tried to rape her more than once, but he just couldn't and he failed. He stuffed toilet tissue in her mouth to stop her from screaming and he made her adopt sexual poses for photographs. He then tried to murder her, first by strangling her using his old school tie and then stabbing her in the back five times because the tie had broken in half. He left her for dead and went home, but fortunately she survived having rolled down the quarry and alerting nearby workmen. And she was obviously really lucky then that there Mm -hmm. were people there um, but also that she actually survived that attack. Yeah, she was absolutely covered in blood, apparently, when she went to go find those workmen. Colin wasn't caught. Um, the offences against this victim were later recorded in his little document diary things, this creepy little manifesto. Um, in the document, he described the attack upon her as his masterpiece, and he said that his plan to carry it out had been 95% successful. As in, she hadn't died. Uh, But also, he couldn't really rape her. No. So So I'm guessing, could he not obtain an erection? I'm not really sure, because it didn't say in specific detail. I couldn't see that anywhere. Yeah. Why he failed, whether she fought back too well, or, like you said, whether he just physically couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. In these same diaries, Colin wrote about three other assault plans that he had made and tried to carry out in 1988, but luckily these had all failed. Again, Colin Ashsmith phoned the police the next day after this quarry attack. He gave details that only her attacker would have known, but said, I'm not a local man, so he was trying to use diversionary tactics, like we then saw with Claire's murder as well. And two years after Colin Ashsmith murdered Claire, in the early evening of the 17th of October 1995, he attacked a 21-year-old woman called Charlotte Bernard as she was walking in the street in Greenhithe. It was literally 360 metres from the scene of Claire's murder. He dragged the screaming health care assistant off the street and stabbed her eight times in the back. And he'd done this in the deserted yard of Kent, Tool and Die. So it was a bit like the quarry as well. So it's quite different to what he did with Claire, where it was an alleyway. When she was found, Charlotte also had defensive wounds to her hands and to her side. He'd left her for dead. And again, he escaped in his car that he'd parked close by. But fortunately, Charlotte also survived. She crawled to a nearby house and both Colin and his car had been seen in the vicinity by a number of witnesses who reported their sightings to the police. And Charlotte also, I think this is so brave, she picked him out in an identity parade as well. Wow. So she was really good at, at 
bringing him to justice. And also, I think, if you've been through a really traumatic event mm-hmm. such as that, you your brain must kind of shut down during mm-hmm. it. So to be able to retain any information yeah. about the attacker and to recall that at a later time is it's unbelievable, yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So the police then obviously investigated him and a bloodstained knife was actually found at his house, so they were able to then link him to this case and in his car was the remaining half of that old school tie that he'd used in the 1988 attack so they were able to link him to that one as well so Colin was arrested that very night it was all stacking up against him and then they found his diaries and these documents where he'd been writing about his plans such an idiot but I still find this weird because you said towards the beginning of the episode that Mm -hmm. justice didn't catch up with him for two decades so they've obviously got all of this evidence but we know He's going to get away with it at this point. Well, half and half. Oh, okay. So in the interview, he actually admitted to the 1988 attack and the attack that just happened the day before on Charlotte Bernard, but he continued to lie about Claire's murder and his involvement in that. And the decision was taken not to charge him with Claire's murder because he's already pleaded guilty um, to the kidnap, attempted rape and attempted murder in 1988 and everything that had happened in 1995. So they were able to sentence him to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 15 years for those, and they were just like, do you know what, at least we've got him for those crimes. Meanwhile, however, the efforts of Claire's family and friends kept her murder in the public conscience, and thanks to the recent full reactivation of the inquiry into it by the Kent police, Colin Ashsmith was finally brought to justice. At the time, officers on the Kent Police Force had spoken to more than 1,500 witnesses and they'd worked tirelessly to try and solve the case. The long and complex investigation into her senseless murder became one of the most emotive cases the detectives had ever been involved in. Even our Prime Minister had told MPs at Prime Minister's Questions that the government would do everything it could to support Kent Police murder investigation. And they called on the public to come forward if they knew anything. But it wasn't until a cold case review launched 20 years after the murder that police interviewed Ash Smith's associates from Wakefield Prison. Now, Colin Ash Smith had told a fellow prisoner about an attack on a zebra crossing and that he'd snapped and stabbed her multiple times. And the police then, when they started talking to people and heard this story, they realised that there was no pedestrian crossing near either of the crimes he'd been prosecuted for. And there was one just a few hundred yards from where Claire had been killed. This was the crossing that he said he'd seen a man crossing. And it was the crossing she would have used when she was going to Vicky's house. So at this point, had he been released from prison? No. So... Luckily, he was due to be considered for release and he was then charged for killing Claire Tiltman on the day that he was due to be released. It was quite poetic, really. He'd served 18 years of his sentence so far and they then he wasn't released because they then charged him on the day that he was due to be um, considered for release. I saw, I mean, obviously, this is a really, really bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an awful thing that he's done, that he's, you know, even the two crimes that he's admitted yeah. to and served that sentence. But... I don't know, maybe there's like a 1% that feels of me that feels yeah, for him. Yeah, like he's expecting to get he's out He's just now. about to get out, yeah. he's going to get released. And then on that, you know, literally at the 11th hour, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's detained once yeah. again. I quite Absolutely like, in I the right it, way. Though. Yeah, like, I do love it. but I know what you mean. I'd just be so gutted. Yeah, you would. You'd be like, right, I got away with this. I'm, yeah. You know, he thinks he's got away with Claire's murder for 18 years. Yeah. But I'm glad just caught years, up with him. Because it was two years before he actually got caught. Investigating officers couldn't have brought the case against him, really, without the bad character evidence before. They just didn't feel like they could have t- 
taken that to trial and actually charged him with Claire's murder because there was no physical evidence. Whereas if you could tell the jury about the prior convictions or the other things he'd done, it would make sense. Or it may have even been that the CPS would have refused to take it on. Possibly, yes. So it may never have even got to trial. But luckily in 2003, her case was reopened because there was a change in the law, which meant jurors were allowed to hear about a defendant's bad character and including any previous convictions if it was felt that they were necessary. And so that meant they they could actually bring him to trial. So Ash Smith told the jury at his trial, I always thought I would protect women, would protect people, wouldn't harm people, and I failed miserably, to be honest. The one chance I got to show restraint and wouldn't do anything and walk away, I failed miserably. Before that, I thought I was a reasonably good person, but to be honest, I was an animal. Now, I just think he's talking shit there, to be honest, because... He's got a manifesto about wanting to go and murder people and he's walking around the streets with a knife looking for someone to attack. Yeah, he's just trying to... Well, I don't know, maybe in his own warped mind he thinks he's he's done nothing wrong, really, or he was a good person. Yeah, he thinks he was a good person before that. Or also maybe his time in prison perhaps has given him some time to think and reflect. Potentially. Maybe. The court heard that Colin Ashsmith habitually carried knives, including sheath, flick, pen and commando style knives. What the hell is a sheath, flick, pen and commando knife? No, they're all different. So sheath well, what's knife, a sheath knife? I guess one that has like a cover. Like, oh, okay. I don't right. know. I was thinking of like a condom knife. Oh, maybe it's a condom knife. I that thought, sounds like yeah. what it could yeah, well be. Yeah, they sell them in all good chemists. Yeah, I've heard of those. Um, apparently, though, the reason he carried knives was because he was attacked when he was like 16 or 17 years old in Dartford Town Centre. Again, is this true? Is it not? P- potentially, if he'd been attacked by some girls, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's what started this whole thing. Maybe. Who knows? And I suppose if you have been attacked, you might be nervous around people, but it just seemed a bit... Hmm. Prosecutors actually said that they felt he got a warped pleasure out of attacking women and he admitted to being fascinated by women. He said, I felt safe, comfortable and powerful with them. He just sounds like a creep. But someone who's so insecure feels so inadequate that he needs to dominate women Mm -hmm. and have this control over them, this power, so that he's got this sense of self. Yeah, exactly. It also turned out that just over a month after Claire's death, Colin had had the gall to attend her funeral, which was surrounded by her grieving friends and family. And unbelievably, he showed up to the sad occasion on February the 25th, wearing the same beige jacket that he'd been wearing when he stabbed her to death. I hope he'd washed it. Yeah, so the jacket was something that the police had taken um, because it was similar to what the fleeing murderer had been wearing, but they'd handed it back to him because it didn't have any evidence that they could... Um, sort of link him to it. So he was obviously getting some kind of warped pleasure from being surrounded by the grief which he had inflicted upon her family and friends. He was getting off on that. Definitely. While the police then began to investigate Claire's murder again, so 20 years later, they did try and find that coat again to try and do better testing. I couldn't work out whether they took the coat at the beginning, but because he has an alibi, they weren't allowed to test it, or whether they didn't find anything back in the 90s, but they could have done something better then. Either way, um, the jacket was nowhere to be found, and so Mm. I'm assuming his parents got rid of that somehow. But equally, 20 years later, are you still going to be wearing the same coat? Same gross base jacket. One would hope not. Yeah. Especially if it had been splattered in blood. He's been in prison the whole time, so his parents are probably like, this is a creepy beige jacket, let's get rid of it. Yeah, and also, you're not going to want to spend 18 years in prison, come out of prison and be wearing the same clothes that you wore 20 years ago. You'd be a bit in a bit of a time war. Yeah. 
Um, when he was spoken to by police on the day of Claire's funeral, so I guess they must have just been going around and talking to people and trying to get more of a feel for things. And I do know that it's quite common that people will try and go to the funeral of the person they've killed. Like you said, to have that warped satisfaction of, I did this. But I also think the police do attend funerals mm-hmm. of victims in these situations, victims of these crimes, because they know that. Yeah, so exactly. they are on the lookout for the suspect potentially attending. Yeah. And so they spoke to him again on that day, and he said his father had mentioned a stabbing incident on the evening of January the 18th, but he didn't know it was Claire um, until he heard a radio report the next day. And the families had known each other from the Royal British Legion Club in Greenhithe, but Colin said he was not socially close to the teenager. Um, So as well as his mum, who had given him a false alibi, his father, Aubrey, was actually jailed for 12 months in 1997 for perverting the course of justice because he destroyed a knife just before the family home was due to be searched by the police. He admitted he had boiled, dismantled and then thrown away a knife to destroy evidence. So his parents knew what a fucking freak he was. But did his mom get sent down for providing a false alibi? The most I could find was that they were looking to prosecute her. Yeah, I haven't good. found for definite whether she was or wasn't. But yeah, the false I... alibi was something that it was perverted in the course of justice as well. And later on, her, his mum and dad had both said, you know, we didn't know what he was doing. But yet they, was, they were covering for him. So they must have known he'd been up to something. In the years following Claire's death, her parents, Clifford and Lynn, made regular appeals to the public and the media for information leading to a conviction. But sadly, her parents didn't live to see her killer brought to justice. Mrs Tiltman died aged 56 in March 2008, and Mr Tiltman died in September 2012, and even as he lay dying in a nursing home, the 62-year-old made a heartfelt appeal to catch his daughter's killer. He said... It's been a long time, but I've never given up hope and I never will. I can't begin to put into words how this has affected our family. She would have been 35 now. I miss her to bits. And Mr and Mrs Tiltman actually did play a part in the court proceedings that eventually brought about the guilty verdict because the prosecution used them as evidence. They played their statements that they'd given to the police. It's quite haunting, really. I think, you know, that's something I've, I've come across a lot as well with these cases that particularly mm-hmm. the mother of the murder victim doesn't often live to old age yeah. that's not always the case 56. but it's quite common that mm-hmm. the, the mum in particular won't live a long life because of the trauma yeah. that she's been through will manifest in a number of ways and Claire was their only daughter they didn't have any other children so it's not even like they had other family that they could put all their efforts into all of their efforts went into trying to convict Colin Ashsmith, who they believed was the killer for all this time. They didn't see justice. And the prosecution had played those statements that they'd made to the police just two days after Claire's murder, and they were read to the jury at the London Crown Court. And tragedy continued for the family during the trial because Mrs Tiltman's cousin, Len, was believed to have suffered a stroke in court while he was listening to the opening speech of the prosecution. Um, paramedics were called to court and he was taken to King's College Hospital nearby so the stress of it again is just impacting people. In a victim impact statement Claire's uncle said of Claire's parents the fact that they allowed her out on the night of her death caused them a massive amount of pain which I just think is horrible they couldn't they couldn't have blamed themselves. No I mean what was she you know 15 16? 16. 16 you're not going to be able to keep a 16 year old girl at home Mm -hmm. and yet it was January it would have been dark but She's entitled to go and see friends. You can't yeah. wrap people up in cotton wool. They've ha- they have to live their own lives. Mm-hmm. 
A number of Claire's school friends were in the gallery to hear the sentencing, but Colin Ashsmith chose not to attend Crown Court at the end of the trial to hear the verdict, which I just think makes him look even worse. It's just cowardice. Yeah, exactly. The judge actually commended Claire's family and friends who'd sat through the trial and the police for their work in bringing her killer to justice, saying, I would also like to commend the members of Claire's family and her friends who have attended this trial for the dignified way in which they have conducted themselves. And I express my sorrow for the burden they have had to carry for many years at Claire's untimely loss. Following his conviction, detectives branded Ash Smith as pure evil and said he should never be freed. The chief Crown Prosecutor called the case one of the most complex cases that the Crown Prosecution Service South East had dealt with in recent years. So um, I've got kind of like the sentencing remarks. So the final sentencing was on the 12th of December 2014, which is just crazy considering she was killed in 1993, so over 20 years later. But just before you go on to Mm. that, I do think there's almost some comfort in the fact that you know, some of these historic murders that remain unsolved, you you should never give up hope mm-hmm. of finding the perpetrator because it can take decades, but it does happen. Justice it happens every year. Yeah. Justice will catch up with these individuals. Not always, but quite often it does. And it can take a year, two years, mm-hmm. 20 years. Yeah. And it's wonderful to know that actually, like we said, it's that poetic justice of, do you know what he was due to be considered for release after 18 years? He thinks he's going to get out. No, you're going down. I feel that's an extra layer of justice for Mm -hmm. her family. Yeah. So this is what Mr Justice Sweeney said to Colin Ashmith, but Colin Ashmith wasn't even there. He actually just had to address it to him in his sentencing remarks without the man even bothering to show up. Colin Ashmith, you are now aged 46. You have been convicted of the brutal murder of Claire Tiltman, which you carried out in a dark alleyway just off the main London Road in Greenhithe in Kent in the early evening of 18th January 1993. You stabbed her nine times with a large knife and she died from her injuries at the scene. In the meanwhile, you made good your escape back to the house in nearby Swanscombe, where you were then living with your parents. You were aged 24 at the time. Claire, who you knew via the local British Legion Club, was the only and much-loved child of Cliff and Linda Tiltman. You murdered her just four days after her 16th birthday. She had an engaging and lively personality and was extremely popular with a wide circle of loyal friends. I have no doubt that this was a premeditated murder that you carried out because of the feeling of power that it gave you. In so doing, you not only ended Claire's young life, which was so full of promise, but you also caused unbearable grief and upset to her family and friends. Claire's murder was not the only attack on a lone female that you carried out in the small area of Greenhithe and Swanscombe. In the period between 1988 and 1995, throughout the vast majority of which you lived in that area, there is only one sentence I can pass upon you, namely life imprisonment. However, I must also impose a minimum term before you can even be considered for parole. In my view, given that Claire was vulnerable by reason of her circumstances and that multiple injuries were inflicted, the highest starting point of 15 to 16 years would have applied. In addition to that, there was planning. You armed yourself with a knife in advance. There is also the aggravating feature of your other convictions. That said, and whilst you only have yourself to blame for not admitting to Claire's murder in the mid-1990s, it seems to me that I must have an eye to the total minimum term that would have been imposed had you been convicted of this offence and sentenced for it, along with the other offences in 1996. So in that regard, I agree with your counsel that the minimum term would not have exceeded 40 years. And in my opinion, the appropriate minimum term by operation of schedule is one of 21 years. So the sentence I pass upon you is life imprisonment with a minimum term of 21 years. 
And I so he's was, serving another 21 on yeah, top of the 18. Yeah, minimum. Yeah. Which I just think is wonderful. And I know it's quite a like, lengthy thing to kind of read it out word for word, but I just felt like that judge was like, yeah, screw you. You did this and you are going to pay for it. And it, I really liked that. It seems like the fairest outcome. Yeah. There was none of this. Oh, well, he has already served 18 years. So do we take that off? It is no you are now going to have life imprisonment minimum term. Done. And I really, really liked that. David Withers, a deputy senior investigating officer, read a family statement outside court after the sentencing, saying Claire's parents went to their graves convinced that Ashmith was Claire's killer, and with today's verdict, may they finally rest in peace. And the Justice for Claire group also said in a statement, today we finally know who murdered her. What we will never understand is why. Claire, or Tilt as we knew her, was unique. She drew people to her. She was beautiful, funny and ambitious with an amazing sense of humour which will always live on in our memories. Today we want to reclaim our friend and remember her for the wonderful person she was rather than what happened to her. And I thought that was a really nice ending to finish on. That, that's almost your trademark. You're really good at bringing it back. <laughs> You're really good at bringing it back to that actual person and who they mm. were and I think that's really important. And I really hope, and I'm not religious at all, but I really hope her mum and dad... Uh, kind of somewhere Mm -hmm. looking down and they know that he was brought to justice yeah and they've got peace yeah definitely and what's really quite sad is is i completely appreciate that claire's murder then went unsolved for 20 years and her she did have that group of family and friends and she had you know the group justice for claire her story is is really out there in the media there's a lot of news reports about what happened to her the other two women that were attacked by him the first woman, I found it really difficult to find anything out about what happened to her back in 1988. And then the second woman, I think because it was quite open and shut, he was picked up the next day. He was then admitting to it. There wasn't this huge thing about it. So again, trying to find out some more information about Charlotte's case was again really quite difficult. But then I also think with Claire, she was the only victim mm-hmm. who was actually murdered by him. Yeah, exactly. So it, and the other you know, two women did worst. survive, which yeah. is wonderful. And yeah, she absolutely should be given more. But it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting layer to that case. Definitely. And it was one that um, I actually picked up from being in the Facebook groups and chatting to everybody, some of the true crime groups that we've been in and talking about different unsolved cases, that this one was unsolved for so long and then... Luckily, her killer was brought to justice. And it. I really liked that actually he was brought to justice. And like you said, it gave me hope for all those other cases where maybe one day something will come of that. And we, we like to do a mixture, don't we? So we like ones where the killer was brought to justice straight away, mm. sometime later. We also like the unsolved. And you yeah. know, it reminds me of, of things like the Jill Dando episode mm-hmm. that we covered very early on, yeah. where that remains unsolved to this day. I know, and it's so and sad. It's really it? sad, mm. but you really hope that it's n- it's never too late yeah. to bring her killer to justice, and maybe one day, maybe in our mm-hmm. lifetimes, we will know who killed her and why. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, if anybody out there has uh, a case for us that they would like us to mention, mm-hmm. uh, please do. Please do uh, mention that case, and we will cover it. Absolutely, yeah. we've done it before, and we'll do it again. Yeah, we've got a couple actually, haven't we, on the on the books? We have. Up. You've got one that you're going to be doing soon. We'll keep it a surprise until it comes out for that yeah. person. But... I'm, f- I'm finding lots of inspiration as well on YouTube. There's mm. all the old historic Crime Watch episodes yeah. have been posted on there. Um, so if you're watching those, uh, you know, we'll, we might have some familiar cases for you coming mm. up. 
uh, but there's some really interesting cases yeah. and some that do remain unsolved. So that's a, a great source of inspiration. But certainly if you have any to suggest, please do suggest on all the usual social media platforms. Yeah. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Seeing Red, the podcast or Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. And then also you can email us, info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. We always stumble over that one. We should have got a better email address. We should have just got .com. Yeah. Uh, But it's .co.uk. It is. And don't forget, guys, subscribe, rate and review. If you like what you've heard today, there's plenty of episodes to go back to if you're new to us. If you're one of our loyal listeners, thank you for sticking with us. And any feedback you want to give us is always greatly received. So all that remains for us to say is thank you for listening once again, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.